Hey, my name is Alyssa Wolf, and as a chronic pain specialist, I am on a mission to empower you to tackle your chronic pain naturally by uncovering hidden truths about pain and exposing the deeper cause. I aim to help you transform your relationship with pain because you've been in this relationship for long enough and you deserve better. You just need a little help to get out of it. And that is what the Chronic Pain Breakup Podcast is all about. I'll be busting pain management myths, teaching you some of the mind-blowing neuroscience of pain, and help you overcome some of the roadblocks that are keeping you from seeing real, long-term improvements in pain. Stick with me, and in no time, you'll learn the keys to breaking up with stubborn pain so you can get back to doing what makes you, you, and living your fearless and fulfilling life. So if you have chronic pain and are looking for no fluff, natural, science-backed pain relief solutions, pull up a seat and get cozy because you are in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome back, pain warriors. Today we are continuing our discussion on CRPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, the condition formerly known as RSD. Now this episode is part two, and I'm going to cover some of the treatment interventions for CRPS. And I realized when I was outlining what I wanted to cover in this episode that there was simply too much information to try to squeeze into just this one episode. So you guys, instead of trying to water everything down and cut out just too much information, I'm going to have a part three. So you're listening to part two today. We're going to talk about some of the treatments that are out there, specifically some of the pain managing strategies and give you a little bit more information so that you can avoid some of the pitfalls of certain pain managing strategies that may have some negative long-term impacts on your condition. Now, if you haven't already listened to part one, the previous episode where I covered some of the neurobiology of the condition, I answered some questions about you know what the condition is, why and how it spreads that it is real. We talked about swelling, we talked about dystonia, and we talked about the leading cause of the condition. And all of that sciencey stuff is important to understand in order to understand the treatments. So if you haven't already listened to part one, go ahead and pause this episode right now. Go ahead and listen to part one. I'll leave a link to that episode in the description so you know where to find it. Now, like I said, In part one, I covered more of the neurobiology of CRPS, some of the science behind it, and I hope that with that episode you were able to kind of see how clearly this is not a fake condition, this is not something that's made up or all in your head. And so today, I want to talk more about some of the treatments for CRPS. Now, there's a few things that you need to know so that you can start making some better decisions in your pain care approach and help you to avoid some mistakes that could be making your condition worse. So today, I aim to clear up some of that misinformation around certain interventions for CRPS specifically. And of course, I won't be able to cover everything because I swear it's like practically every day I hear about some new technology or technique or strategy or approach that promises to work to relieve pain. And we really have to be wary of all these new fads that start popping up, especially when they're so new and we don't have a ton of information on them yet. And so as just sort of a bit of a disclaimer, of course, I can't possibly share everything that you need to know about your treatment approaches for CRPS and teach you all of the detailed how-to steps for implementing different strategies and techniques in one podcast episode. And I can't provide recommendations without knowing your precise situation because everyone is different. Sure, we may be just talking about CRPS here specifically, but everyone is different. There are different underlying mechanisms for folks, even with the same condition. You know, people have different circumstances, different symptoms, different limitations, different goals. And so I can't possibly help everyone get relief with one 30-minute podcast episode, right? 
And so that's why I offer these free one-on-one -on -one phone calls. So if you want to get a little bit more personalized guidance and get a personalized plan to help you get as pain-free as possible, then go ahead, schedule, your, schedule yourself, get on my calendar for that one-on-one -on -one call. With all that being said, let's dive right in. So in terms of pain management approaches, they're not all created equal. Now, usually I'd like to say that anything that relieves pain is good. Even if it, if it works for you, do it, right? No harm, no foul. However, when it comes to CRPS, there are some pain management strategies that even though they can give you immediate, short-term, satisfying pain relief, they may not have a long, they may have long-term impacts for your CRPS that are actually keeping you in pain, meaning they're not helping you long-term because they may be reinforcing the underlying mechanisms at play. Okay, so if you've listened to part one, you'll recall that the nerves locally in the painful region become overly sensitive and reactive, right? So they're, they're just there picking up every little stimuli and they're just like firing like crazy. So in theory, we would want to avoid anything that might cause those overly reactive nerves in that area to fire more, right? They're already firing too much. So we don't want to get them firing even more. Well, a commonly used form of pain management, as you all are probably already aware, is electrical stimulation, right? It's a little counterintuitive to use electrical stimulation directly on an area that is already overly sensitive. Does that make sense? Now, you guys, I don't want you to be fooled because in this day and age, it's very trendy for biotech companies, clinics of all kinds to come up with new devices that put out some quote unquote, different form of electrical stimulation. Nowadays, we've got TENS units, right? Y'all have heard of TENS units. You've heard of those. But we've also got microcurrent. We've got NMES or neuromuscular electrical stimulation. It's also sometimes called Russian stimulation. We've got spinal cord stimulators, right? It's as if practically every day I hear about some new device that uses some form of electrical stimulation to fix pain or reset, quote unquote, reset your nervous system, or change your brain waves, or something like that. Please don't get too caught up in this stuff, you guys. This is all marketing is, right? Everyone has heard of TENS, and everyone who's tried it knows that it's okay for pain relief. So you know what marketers do to get more people to buy their products, or use their high-tech, you know, expensive services? They give it a new fancy name. Like, shit, I could come up with something completely new right off the top of my head, something new like, you know, let's call it uh, low-frequency low neuro-programming, neuro-reprogramming current. And let's market it as this, you know, handheld device that syncs up to your phone and it comes with an app and all that. You guys, no matter how many ways we try to repackage it or rebrand it, all they're doing is giving the same electrical stimulation a new name. It's all the same electrical stimulation. The difference is we just kind of change up some of the parameters around, right? We may alter the frequency or the amplitude or the pulse width, but it's still all the same at the end of the day. It's still electrical stimulation. And if I were in your situation, I would probably try to avoid using electrical stimulation on the affected area with CRPS specifically. It might be okay to use it in a remote area, but quite frankly, I'd probably try to avoid placing it on the opposite limb or even the same side limb because of the risk of spreading, which we talked about in part one. So generally speaking, electrical stimulation in almost any form wouldn't be my go-to choice for managing pain with CRPS. You guys with me on that? Now also, I discussed in part one how the brain loses its ability to correctly process sensory information from that body region. So it reacts to practically every message that it gets from the body as if it's an emergency situation. 
This brain change is brought on by immobilization, either physical immobilization or functional immobilization, either through the use of a brace, a boot, a cast, a splint, a sleeve, whatever, or through not moving it, avoiding the use of it, ignoring it, compensating or, or neglecting it. It leads to this disconnect where the brain literally disconnects from that area and it can get so bad to where the brain starts to believe that it's not your body part and it starts to defend you from the body part itself as if it were a foreign body, like as if it were rejecting a transplant. This is really where pain management gets super tricky because our go-to response to a pain intensity problem like this is to try to numb the pain. We want to numb the area so we don't feel the pain or we don't feel it as much. So we have all these remedies that aim to numb the pain. But think about that for a second. If avoiding it, ignoring it, neglecting it, numbing it, that's what's causing this change. That's what leads to this change in the brain. So when we use pain management approaches that attempt to numb the pain, that can make those brain changes even worse, right? It can make the brain disconnect from that body part even more. And not only can it make those changes even worse, but it can also cause the nervous system to further ramp up its defense mechanisms, right? It basically says, okay, I'm not, uh, so I'm trying to tell you that I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to tell you that about a potential injury and you keep trying to shut me up. Well, I'm not going to shut up, right? If you try to quiet me down, I'm just going to yell even louder. So some examples of pain management approaches that just numb the pain, those are gonna be things like ice, right? Numbing creams, nerve blocks, injections, ablations, lidocaine patches, and opioid medications, okay? Those types of things can contribute back to the core underlying problem involving central sensitization. Now, don't come after me just yet because I'm not saying that I'm against the use of opioids or any other form of pain management. I am not the opioid police, right? I have zero judgment on you if you take them. And also, I just believe that it is important for you to fully understand what opioids or any other type of pain management approach that you take has on your body and on your condition long term. Yes, I believe there's a ton of value in using pain management strategies like those that I just mentioned because the less you spend your time in pain, the better. So we do need to be very strategic about pairing those pain management approaches with approaches that will have a long-term impact on your condition, a positive long-term impact on your condition. But the reality is, I just want you to know and understand that those, those pain management strategies that I just mentioned, they can have a negative long-term effect on your pain because they can worsen the underlying root condition, the root cause, the root mechanism by basically telling your nervous system, your nervous system responds to those pain management strategies and says, I'm just gonna yell louder. And that's exactly what happens when we take opioid medications, okay? Now, another pain management therapy that's gaining a whole lot of popularity in the CRPS world is ketamine, right? And because this is such a hot topic and because there is so much to discuss about ketamine, I'm gonna have to do a whole episode just on ketamine all on its own where I can do a more thorough job just summarizing some of the research that's out there about it. But because today I don't have the time to really dive into all of the details and the nitty gritty and the research on the topic of ketamine, what I wanna do is just summarize some of the big points, the common highlights from several studies that investigated the use of ketamine specifically for patients with CRPS. Now, anytime anyone is considering treatments of any kind, it is your body 
It is your care. And of course, there's pros and cons to every treatment intervention. And so it is your responsibility to weigh those pros and cons, right? It is your responsibility, not your doctor's, right? Your doctor's job is to properly inform you so you can make those decisions, informed decisions for yourself. So that being said, let's talk about some of the pros and cons of ketamine use for CRPF specifically, straight from the research. So first, let's talk about some of the pros. Okay, so yes, ketamine can reduce pain. It was reported in one review that immediately after treatment, about 69% of participants achieved at least a 30% reduction in pain. However, it's important to note that effective pain relief is short-term, okay? Often it lasts less than three months. Three months is kind of the max, okay? Another study reported that effects of ketamine were not sustained beyond four to 11 weeks post-treatment, which is kind of a big range when you think about it. Um, and other studies were reporting pain relief for up to six weeks. So the research is kind of all over the place in terms of like the maximum effectiveness of how long it can have a benefit for relieving pain. And one thing to also note, it was interesting to see that treatment relieved pain, but it did not improve functional ability. So the ability to use the limb or walking ability or active range of motion did not improve, which was surprising because when pain improves, you would expect those other things to improve as well. Um, it was also observed that it was more effective for folks with relatively new CRPS, but was ineffective for patients with a long history of the condition, which was also so, somewhat surprising. Now, let's talk about some of the cons, some of the downsides of using ketamine. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the administration of ketamine is itself a con. Okay. There are different forms of administration for the use of ketamine these days, but typically it's done as an IV infusion where you're admitted to the hospital as an inpatient for several days. So some studies reported protocols where they did four-hour treatments for 10 days. Other studies showed that there can be an effect with three to five days of treatments. And the reason you have to be admitted to the hospital when you're doing these treatments is because of all of these potential side effects. Okay. First and foremost, there is a risk for psychological effects, okay? So it can distort your perceptions and cause you to feel detached or dis dissociated from the environment or from yourself. It can cause hallucinations. Uh, it can cause inebriation or basically like a drunkenness feeling or feeling of like a drug high. It can cause paranoia and delusions, okay? Aside from those psychotropic effects, there's a risk for elevated blood pressure it can cause difficulty sleeping, nightmares, severe headaches, nausea, dizziness, fatigue, transient blindness, and muscular weakness that persists for weeks after the treatment. There's also concern that it could impact cognitive function or basically your thinking ability long term, but this hasn't really been confirmed yet with the research. And then, of course, there's this big risk for liver injury or liver failure. In fact, it can throw off liver enzymes after a single course of treatment and can take months for those enzymes to return to normal. Those toxic effects are not only limited to the liver, but it can be toxic to other organs as well, which is important to note. Lastly, because it's an inpatient treatment, because of its intensive care nature, a majority of patients actually in the research studies had infections post-treatment which can lead to other complications and even risk for morbidity. So clearly we don't wanna downplay the risks and side effects of the use of ketamine. So just to put it in perspective, in one trial, 
five out of six patients were withdrawn from the study because of those side effects. The blood pressure was too high, their psychotropic effects were too significant or too severe, or their liver enzymes were elevated too high. So these risks are significant and they are important to consider before you decide if this is a treatment for you. The big takeaways that I think you need to know is that ketamine has a short-term effect. So it's not a cure and basically repeated treatment is needed. It requires hospitalization and close observation. So in that regard, it is, it is a significant cost to implement this treatment of both time, money, and resources. And so basically after reviewing all the literature on all this, this is what I wanna leave you with. Like what you should kind of take away from all this is that the quality of the research on the use of ketamine for CRPS is low. Many studies are flawed and there's currently only weak evidence supporting the use of ketamine for CRPS. And I want to leave you with this quote from one of the studies, okay? So it says, quote, it cannot be considered a first-line option. It may be considered a last resort, end quote. So generally speaking, I would agree with that statement because it is costly to administer. You've got to be hospitalized and under close attention, medical attention, because there's lots of risks and the benefits are not long-term. Like as bet, at best, you might find relief for 12 weeks. You may only have benefits for three to four weeks. So it's a lot to take on for a short-term benefit, and it's probably not something that you'd want to repeat over and over again as a long-term pain management strategy. I think for the right people in the right circumstances, this may be an okay option at certain times, but I don't think it's feasible for everyone, okay? Now, let's talk briefly about immobilization, okay? Because if, if I were in your position, I would try my best to avoid immobilization or basically bracing, casting, splinting, anything like that, okay? Because we know that immobilization causes the nervous system changes that we were talking about in part one. So immobilization, whether that's physical or functional, has a long-term impact on your nervous system and can be keeping you in pain long-term, even though it may feel safer and less painful while you're doing it. The same thing goes for avoiding movement, um, not touching it, not using it, ignoring it, neglecting it, trying to disconnect from the painful area and disowning it. You know, I get it. It's much easier to not use it, but if you don't use it, you lose it, literally. The recovery process for CRPS is not easy. It means doing movements, drills, positions, exercises that are not intuitive because your natural instinct is to avoid, immobilize, and protect. It's not easy to start moving it again, to reconnect and feel that area and teach your brain and your body to speak the same language again and start communicating effectively again. That kind of recovery work takes a lot of attention, a lot of focus and energy and care and time. It is not easy. But like I said, if you wanna do something that will have a long-term impact on your condition and not just mask or numb the pain short-term, you basically have to do the opposite of avoidance and immobilization without, and this is the key, without forcing it, without pushing through or into the pain. The no pain, no gain mindset here is not helpful either. Now, some of you have asked me if physical therapy can help, and if so, how? And so it is in this way that getting you moving again, physical therapy can help. The problem is that most physical therapists are not CRPS experts. They won't know how to properly teach you how to pace things. They won't know how to pace things out for you. Unfortunately, oftentimes they're just going to notice that you're weak and you have that your range of motion is limited. So they're going to jump on working on that first. 
The problem is most folks with CRPS can't tolerate that level of either manual therapy, therapeutic exercise, or stretching right off the bat. And so some physical therapists may try to administer different modalities to help with the pain. Again, things like ice, TENS units, electrical stimulation, ultrasound, laser, right? Those kinds of modalities. I already mentioned ice and TENS, but you guys, ultrasound has been shown to be no more effective than sham placebo. Cold laser or low-level laser, there's limited evidence to support its effectiveness, and I've often seen it compared to therapeutic ultrasound, so it might be slightly more effective than ultrasound, but again, it's a modality that hasn't had huge success or efficacy in the research. Now, speaking of modalities, you guys know this, but physical therapists are not the only ones who use modalities. Physical therapists do use them, chiropractors also use them, some massage therapists use them, some DOs who practice OMT may use them. You're just gonna find modalities everywhere you go. Now, I have a very biased opinion about modalities, but with so many of them, it's like, we're just looking at the new, next new technology or device or whatever. Again, we give them these fancy names that sound scientific, but the reality is these are just really expensive devices, technologies and remedies with unknown, unproven or very little benefits. So like sound wave therapy, vibration therapy, oxygen therapy, red light therapy, ion therapy, diathermy, magnetic field therapy, ultrasound, TENS, lasers. To me, the benefits are minimal, are negligible compared to the cost, the financial cost and the time cost that it takes to utilize those modalities. Now, if you have unlimited time and financial resources, then heck, have at it except that we may not even know what the risks are, if there are any, because the research studies that are done on these kinds of modalities are often done or funded by the medical device manufacturers themselves. And they're often not long-term studies, so we don't see the long-term effects. Now, since we're on this topic of physical therapy, some physical therapists, a few of them, may utilize desensitization as a form of therapy, or they might teach you to do it to yourself, where you kind of touch the skin with something that causes some lower amount of pain, right? So maybe you start touching the area with a tissue or a cotton ball, and eventually the goal is to kind of work your way up to something a little bit more pain provoking, like a wash rag or something else that's a little bit more rough. And then the idea is that you just sit there sort of passively while putting yourself into pain, and you do it for so long until you just get used to the pain, right? Or at least there's this, that's the theory. So desensitization like this is based on the theory of accommodation. The problem is we don't want to further desensitize that area. We've already talked at great length about the underlying problem with CRPS is that there is a disconnect between the brain and the body part. So we don't want to further desensitize that area. And we don't want to provoke symptoms because doing so can contribute to this and strengthen and reinforce those pain pathways. So instead of desensitization, what we need to do is focus on resensitization, reintegration of sensory information, reconnecting the brain and the body part again, teaching the brain to speak the same language as the body again, teaching the brain to understand and correctly interpret the messages from the body that the body is sending. Now, similar to desensitization in that it is sort of the right idea, wrong execution, is this whole idea of vagus nerve stimulation. Now, I don't want to get into it here, but friends, the problem that I see with vagus nerve stimulation is that, number one, the techniques that they use where they claim that they can activate the vagus nerve aren't actually going to activate the vagus nerve. 
So like sticking your finger in your ear, putting your tongue on the roof of your mouth in a certain position, or moving your eyes a certain way, or stroking your neck, splashing ice water in your face, humming or gargling. There's so many different ways that I've seen, you know, recommended out there for vagus nerve stuff. Not only are these techniques a little bit ridiculous, they're not going to activate your vagus nerve. Even when they kind of massage your neck to try to stroke the vagus nerve or whatever it is, that's not going to stimulate the nerve. If it does help, that's not going to stimulate the vagus nerve to do what we want it to do. If it does help with your pain or if it does calm you down, it's likely because of other reasons, not because you've actually stimulated the vagus nerve. Okay. And number two, even if we could stimulate the vagus nerve with these silly drills, they aren't going to have a long-term effect on the problem itself. Because unless your vagus nerve specifically is injured or damaged, which would be pretty nearly impossible to do on an isolated injury in itself, but that nerve is not causing the problem. That nerve isn't making the decisions about whether or not to put you in a fight or flight response in the first place or a state of rest and digest. It's not the one making those decisions. In fact, you've heard me say this before, but the fight or flight response is just a symptom. So even if these drills could help shift the body out of that fight or flight state and into a state of rest and digest, they'd only be helping you manage the symptom, not addressing the deeper cause. I see the theory behind all of it, but again, I think it was a good idea, just the wrong execution. So if it were me, I would not be prioritizing my time doing vagus nerve stimulation techniques. If I were in your shoes, vagus nerve stimulation would not be the best use of my time. Instead, if you want to manage your fight or flight response and help to calm your body down or regulate your nervous system, a better way to do that is probably through breathing drills, okay? So slowing your breathing down or meditating possibly or using some other relaxation drill or technique. Those types of things are going to be better at relieving some of that fight or flight symptom short term, okay? Now, we covered a lot today, and I mean a lot, and I haven't, I still haven't even gotten into discussing some of the treatment recommendations that I have for what you can do about the pain outside of healthcare providers, outside of medical interventions, and outside of modalities and these pain managing strategies. So this episode today was more about talking about some of the misinformation around those pain management strategies. And I think this was really important to go over because like I said, I think traditionally, you know, I see people getting so caught up in searching for these different ways to manage their pain, right? They're just looking for any and all ways to just manage their pain. And with a condition where pain is as severe and intense as it is with CRPS, managing pain is important. It's not only important, it's compassionate, it's necessary. But it's important to realize that not all pain managing approaches are created equal. Like I said, I'd like to say it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's hard, no harm, no foul. But the reality is you need to know that some pain managing approaches could be keeping you in pain long term. And that way, with that knowledge, you can make more informed decisions about which approaches you want to take in your pain care. And also, I don't want you to get too caught up in the search for pain managing strategies or buy into this idea that you can never get better. Friends, if you don't want to just leave it all up to chance that you'll get better, if you don't just want to manage your pain day in and day out for the rest of your life, then we need to balance out the other side of the equation with approaches that aim to address the pain itself, that have a long-term effect on the pain because they address the underlying mechanism so that you can finally start living your life again and do the everyday things without constantly thinking about pain all the time because that's exhausting. It's exhausting to constantly have to be thinking about pain and what you can and can't do and constantly be living in that pain and that fear 
of what could happen and all of the what ifs, if you want to get out of that, you're going to have to do more than just wait around and rely solely on pain managing strategies, right? Can you see that? So that is what I want to talk more about in part three. So stay tuned for that. And if you've been searching for help, someone who can give you a step-by-step -step plan to help you learn what you can do on your own at home without expensive modalities or without medications, without painful exercises, or the whole push and crash cycle, without it taking so much of your time and energy, and because you know it's not going to be easy, you know that having outside support will help you get as pain-free as possible, then I'd invite you to take that first step and just set up a free one-on-one -on -one call with me where we'll just discuss your unique situation, we'll get you some answers, and find out what we might be able to do to get your life back if this is even something that I can help you with. So set up that call and I'll talk to you soon. Otherwise, friends, I'll see you in the next one in part three, the third and hopefully final part of this CRPS series. As always, let me know your thoughts, send me a DM on Instagram, at Pain Crusader, and tell me what you learned from this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chronic Pain Breakup Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you want to take this relationship to the next level, you can connect with me and other pain crusaders inside my private Facebook group, Battling Chronic Pain with Neuroscience, where these episodes are actually recorded live. And I'd love to hear from you. Share your questions and biggest struggles with your chronic pain recovery journey by reaching out to me on Facebook or on Instagram at Pain Crusader. Thanks again for listening and never stop learning.